Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Laura Massini-Houghton, renowned cosmologist and physicist, recorded at Exeter Phoenix, June 2019. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to your beautiful and historic city. I will be talking about what we think we understand and know on uh, where Big Bang inflation came from. Many of you may have heard that uh, our universe started with a bang and then it grew very quickly. But the major question is why? What was there before? What gave that bank? So let me tell you first what we believe we know, and that is the story after that first moment of creation. The universe was a tiny pinpoint type particle, but full of energy, and and the energy forced it to blow up. So that's big bang inflation. It grew very quickly. It started expanding in an accelerated manner. And then pretty quickly, as, as it grew, the temperature dropped down. So the first elementary particles started to appear in the universe. In fact, the first protons formed only at 10 to the minus 6 of a second in the life of the universe. Everything else happened quickly. And eventually, here is us today. And the universe is full of stars and galaxies and light and cosmic dust and us. So that's the story that we believe we know well because we have a uh, model, a standard model of cosmology and all the observations done to date of the sky agree to exquisite precision with this story. What else do we think we know? Well, part of this story is structure formation and the cosmic microwave background, all the photons, the afterglow of creation that uh, is left in our sky today. I think all of you will know of the old versions of TV sets where if you turned into a channel, you'd get bzzz. That bzzz was the cosmic microwave background. So that, that is the leftover radiation that fills every corner of our sky and, and we could even catch with our television sets. It took about five billion years to, to make us as a result. And the way that story goes is initially during the Big Bang, you have this energy that fluctuates, the energy of inflation, of cosmic inflation. Those fluctuations in the energy induce ripples in the very fabric of space-time as well. As the universe grows and the temperature drops, as I told you, many of these wiggles, if you have a concentration in certain places of them, many of them start collapsing, condensing under their own gravitational weight. That's how we get the stars and the whole structure that we observe in in the universe today. Part of those ripples produce the cosmic microwave background, which is photon, is radiation waves. And that is the reason that although the universe has expanded to tremendous size at present, we still have the cosmic microwave background fill every speck of the universe. The universe initially was the, the elementary particles that are protons and neutrons and electrons. And then you, you get stars by the story I told you, but even stars are produced by the lightest element, the hydrogen cloud, in, in the very early moments in the life of the universe. So how did we come to be here? Because of stars. Stars are factories of producing 
heavier elements. Because of the pressure at the core of the star and, and in the center of the star, hydrogen is converted to deuterium and, and from there you get all the heavier elements. Eventually you get us. So we are not as old as the universe and it is very hard to make us. It's what physicists call the nonlinear fluctuation. That part of the story we have loved and believed until 1998. And then a stunning discovery was made by a team, a very distinguished team that got a Nobel Prize three years after their discovery, of supernova observers. They discovered that our universe is accelerating again. We are banging again, and it's now. It's at the present time. And we understand from the early universe that the only way to make the universe go into an accelerated expansion rather than just a normal expansion is if you have energy in the universe. And that energy was dubbed dark energy. And it was observed observationally. So let, let me say a few more uh, words about the cosmic microwave background because it's very important. It's our playground for testing our cosmological theories. So here is a map of the sky. Wherever you have concentrations of matter, like stars, that part of the sky is hot. So it shows as a red spot there. Wherever you have empty parts in between stars, voids, that part of the sky is cold. You can see that the distribution of cold and hot is very uniform. And that's a prediction of Big Bang inflation. It's one of its most powerful predictions we expect since the universe started small and it blew up in the same manner in all directions, like you'd blow up a balloon. You expect that distribution of all the hots and the colds in that universe to be uniformly sprinkled. So that was one of the tests that really gave us a very high level of confidence on, on the story of uh, Big Bang inflation. Then what's our problem? We have a problem and we have a major one. Maybe some of you have heard of entropy, which measures disorder, how much information. If you think of the universe as a box, then you can ask how much information can I stuff inside that box? How can you calculate that? Well, think of this room. We know the volume of this room and we pretty much know how many air molecules are inside. So we can calculate how many of those air molecules can be rearranged in different ways until we exhaust all possible ways of rearranging them. That's the entropy. It measures how much information you can stuff in this room. The same goes for the universe. We know how much stars, galaxies, cosmic dust, radiation waves, everything. We know how much is stuffed in the universe. So we can calculate the entropy of the universe. There is a very fundamental law of nature called the second law of thermodynamics that deals with entropy, which says entropy always grows, disorder always grows. That, by the way, also gives the arrow of time. So we, we know that whatever entropy our universe has at present is a lot larger than what it was at the very first moment in its existence, because entropy always grows. So back then, if the entropy is a certain amount now, back then the entropy must have been incredibly small. There is a grave in Vienna, Boltzmann's grave, that has probably the most important and simplest equation of physics engraved on it. It says that the probability to find a certain configuration, a certain state, think of this room again. If I've labeled all the molecules here and, and I ask, what is the chance that I will find that particular configuration where molecule one is on that corner, molecule two is on that other corner, and so on. So that probability 
and that's, that's what's engraved in Boltzmann's, Ludwig Boltzmann's grain, that probability is proportional to the entropy. The exact mathematical form is exponential of the entropy. So the higher the entropy, the more likely that particular state of your system is. The lower the entropy, the less likely, which is the reason why disorder is favored, because disorder has high entropy and therefore has a higher probability to occur than, than order. What about the universe? This is our big box now, is the universe. We know the entropy now. We can trace it backwards all the way to the moment of creation and calculate the entropy of the universe back then. And right then, we have the chance, the probability, for that particular type of creation to occur, Big Bang inflation. That's how we calculate the probability that our universe started in the way we think it did. And that probability is one chance in 10 to the power 10 to the power 123, 10 billion, and then add another, multiply that 123 times. So it's nearly zero. The chance to start a universe the way our universe started is incredibly, ridiculously small. And that can mean only two things. Either the creation of our universe was an incredibly special event, then of course there will be some people that will say we already knew that. Or there is another possibility, which is there is a very basic part of the story we are not understanding here. We are missing something very fundamental and, and very elementary at the same time. So I subscribed to the second one. And before I tell you the most recent ideas that, that we can also test and are testing in, in cosmology, let me go through the briefest history of ideas I, I can capture in, in a few minutes. The world, of course, was held on, on the back of an elephant, which itself was resting on the back of a turtle. But then the question is, where does the turtle stand? And there was an uh, article in uh, New York Daily in 1924, where a woman says, where does the turtle stand? And of course, it stands on the back of another turtle. And you can keep going like that. The question is, what about this last turtle? Where does that one stand? Well, that's related to space and time because we are going infinitely backwards in time. If um, Hindus had their ideas of time, where time is circular, so you don't run into the problem of where is the end point of, of that direction. However, as uh, Bertrand Russell put it in his pamphlet, Why I'm Not a Christian, he's talking about the story of the turtles, and he said when we ask the Indian, but where does the last turtle stand? He says, suppose we change the subject. So that was back then. Now we don't need to change the subject. Now we, we have the tools and, and the observations to actually follow that part of the story. But whatever scientists have come up with in this decade is a repeat of the ideas that have been discussed for 2,000 years since the ancient Greeks. Plato and Aristotle and Einstein wanted the universe to be infinite in size and eternal, to have no beginning. That, that would avoid the question of creation, what gave that beginning and what was there before. That didn't work because Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding, is a certain size today, so it must have been a point back then, back in time. So we know now that our universe is not eternal and is not infinite in size. Then there are the atomists, Democritus, Lucifer, Epicurus, and all those that said no. You can think of the universe as a collection of atoms that, that uh, keep smashing and vaporizing and recreating. 
And Epicurus, to me at least, that's the most stunning uh, logical reasoning, Epicurus was, uh, went as far as to actually argue in favor of an uncertainty principle. And the way he did that was based on free will. He said, well, if we are made of atoms and all of them have a predetermined course, as say Democritus believed, then our bodies are also made of atoms, so there is no free will left for us. The only way to allow for free will is to allow little wiggles, little deviations from a predetermined course in the path of atoms. In that case, the collection of all the atoms in our body, if you add up all the deviations, then there is room there for, for free will. 2,000 years later, one of the most famous scientists in the history of science, uh, Werner Heisenberg, came up with the uncertainty principle, the same uncertainty principle that Epicurus had argued for. Now, the question of creation was a very important and continues to be a very important problem to all of us. We want to know where we came from. Usher was a very erudite man. He spent a lot of time reading all the holy books and every knowledge that was collected up to that point about this question. And he calculated that the world must be created at 6 p.m. on 22nd of October, 4004 BC. Now, we may laugh at that statement today, but this was taken quite seriously for a few hundred years because we didn't know better and we didn't have better equations or observations. Of course, a big change occurred when uh, Isaac Newton came up with the theory of gravity, which was then transcended by Einstein. Just to make a point here, uh, Newton's theory of gravity is pretty good, and we use it extensively even today. When we study stars, uh, we don't use Einstein's theory, we use Newton's theory. If we want to send a rocket, we continue using Newton's theory. But if you are looking at objects that move very fast, at, at speeds close to the speed of light, then you need Einstein's theory of relativity, which is an improved and extended version of Newton's theory of gravity. The bottom line of, of uh, Einstein's way of thinking was that gravity equals curvature. So the curvature of our universe, the shape of our universe, is determined by how much stuff we have in it. Energy, matter, radiation, everything. That's another very important tool that we use today for observational tests of our theories. But, as I mentioned, Einstein, like, like Plato and Aristotle, had one universe. At the same time, in the early 1900s, in 1920s, we have Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and Erwin Schrödinger, who come up with quantum mechanics, totally diametrically opposite to Einstein's theory. In fact, Einstein got his Nobel Prize, adding to this theory of quantum mechanics. Nevertheless, it didn't stop him, really find it very disturbing as a description of reality, of space-time, of the universe. What was so disturbing about it? And there is a reason I'm telling you this, because I will follow along the quantum lines to get to what we know today. Well, in quantum mechanics, the most basic ingredient there is that every object that we think of as a particle is also a wave. It's known as the wave-particle duality. The whole universe, when it started, was a small-sized object, a particle, so we can think of it as a wave. But there is more. There is uncertainty, thanks to Heisenberg. So there is an uncertainty principle at works, which forces quantum theory to talk not with absolute certainty, but it forces us to talk of probabilities instead, including the creation of the universe. So we know the universe was small, therefore it should be described by quantum theory, and we know that quantum theory allows us to think of it as a wave. At the same time, if we ask the question of creation, what gave Big Bang inflation, we end up not with one answer, 
but with a family of answers, with a family of, of universes. Each one of those events, each one of those possible creations that would produce a universe having a certain probability. As I mentioned at the beginning, the chance for our universe to start the way it did is very small. But there are other possibilities that we can think of that have a higher chance. So that's the uncertainty principle that works. But then we have the Schrodinger equation, the answer to which is a family of solutions, a family of initial universes, of infant baby universes. As you know, we've all listened to uh, music and gone to concerts. When, when you are sitting in the room, you are not listening to a single wave, a single harmonic produced by a single instrument. You are listening to the collection of all the waves produced by all the instruments superposed with each other, mixed with each other. That, that's what reaches your ear. Exactly the same happens in quantum theory. So we have a bunch of waves that could become universes, all of them superposed to each other. And that Einstein found very spooky. What does it mean to have an infinite number of universes mixed with each other, an infinite number of space-times and geometries mixed with each other? As Heisenberg put it, the universe is not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. On the other hand, quantum theory has been proven to exquisite precision to be correct and to be the theory that describes the world at small scales, at short distances, while Einstein's theory of gravity describes the world at large scales. The important thing is that quantum theory predicts many universes and they might even be superposed with each other. What do we make of them? Well, Bohr argued only one of them is real. Throw the rest away. How do you make one real? You say, well, if I'm not observing that other universe, to me, that one is not real. The only real universe in the whole family of universes is the one we observe. The collapse of the wave function. It, it had a lot of support in the 30s, but not as much now. Then Hugh Everett came along. He was a PhD student with John Wheeler at Princeton University. And he said, no, if all the solutions come out of the same equation, and we have no other special criteria that says this one is good and that one is bad, then all of them are good with an equal right. That did not go well. However, it had a horrible end, a very tragic end, until the 1970s when Bryce DeWitt was one of the very few people that really liked Everett's way of thinking and what Everett had called the universal wave function of the universe interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, Bryce DeWitt found a better name. He said the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. That was the story until about two decades ago. There must be one universe. There is something we don't understand but must be wrong with Everett's way of thinking. But something happened. The discovery of dark energy that I told you about. To paraphrase St. Augustine's saying, if anyone asks what God was doing before creating the universe, he was busy preparing hell for those that asked that question. That's what the majority of scientists believed until 1998. And the reason for that, again, was the belief that you have only one universe. We couldn't argue with the fact that our universe is expanding now, so it must have been very small back then. So the, the only other alternative is don't even ask what was back then, before the universe started. So why now? What happened in the last 20 years? Dark energy is one of those discoveries that really forced us to think deeply on, on the question. We see all the stars and the galaxies and a lot of objects in, in the night sky, but all of that put together is only about 5% 
of the total energy in the energy of the universe at present. There is some other stuff we don't see, but it's not very disturbing because at least it's matter. It's something we are familiar with. Even if we don't see it, at least we know what matter is. And that's called dark matter. It's a type of matter that's non-luminous, so we can't see it. That makes about 20% of the total energy of the universe at present. The lion's share, about 70%, is dark energy. So not only this dark energy is of the same type as the energy that created the universe, Big Bang inflation, and not only is it of the same kind that we do not understand, we have no intuition, no idea, we don't come across energies in our daily life, but it, it also dominates the expansion of the universe at present. That was one of the things that really pushed us all to think deeper on, on the question of Big Bang inflation is the same kind of energy as the one that bothers us now, that is accelerating the universe now. But there was another discovery about the same time in 2004, and that was something known as the landscape of string theory. Now, what is that? String theory was the most promising candidate for achieving Einstein's dream of having one theory that explains one universe to make the whole picture work, to, to unify quantum theory with Einstein's gravity, with the gravitational force. It had to assume the existence of 11 dimensions, not four. We are accustomed to four. Our universe is a four-dimensional object with height, length, and time. Those are the four dimensions we are familiar with. String theory says, no, there are 11 dimensions really in space, but the other seven, the ones we don't see, are made tiny. They are curled up and made so tiny that they are invisible to us. But if you are willing to buy that part, then string theory does very successfully unify the force of gravity to the three quantum forces, electromagnetism, Maxwell's electromagnetism, and the nuclear force and the weak force. It was a very promising theory. It achieved the goal that Einstein was after. So eventually, the point of the whole exercise would be make those extra dimensions tiny. So what we are left with is four big dimensions. Therefore, what we are left with is a universe like us. If we could do that, that would be great. Then we had a fundamental theory of nature that really produced one universe like ours. You know the Chinese curse, uh, be careful what you wish for, because they did get a four-dimensional universe like ours, but not just one. They got a nearly infinite number of possible four-dimensional universes like ours. So from a theory of everything, suddenly, string theory was starting to look very much like a theory of the multiverse. Exactly what Einstein had really disliked about quantum theory. And this pictorial is all the four-dimensional worlds that are produced in string theory out of 11 dimensions. How did that happen? Well, you are trying to curl up seven extra dimensions. That's quite a big volume of space that you're trying to get rid of. And that volume is not empty. It's got particles, currents, fields, anything you can think of. So every time you squash them and try to make them tiny, to make them invisible to us, that's one way of rearranging all the material that is inside. And, and think of combinatorics. There are so many ways where you can squash this volume and rearrange all the particles and fluxes and fields and currents, everything that occupies that extra volume that you are trying to get rid of. So every time you repeat that exercise, you get a new four-dimensional world. At present, the number of these four-dimensional universes found is 10 with 600 zeros behind. 
so that those were the two major, and, and these are major. I mean, string theory was our leading candidate of a theory of everything, a 3,000-year-old effort to finally understand our universe. And at the same time, dark energy was, was a monumental discovery because we were just told that our universe is accelerating again, is, is banging again. And that dark energy determines the ultimate destination of our universe. It determines how the universe will die. So because of that, there was a lot of effort in the community trying now to rethink everything we knew about physics and think at it from a different light. One of the efforts was and what's known as an anthropic effort, which was, well, okay, string theory gave us a Googleplex number of universes, but maybe the other ones don't allow life. So the only real one is the one that allows life to witness it. If we can observe the universe, then we know for sure it exists. It sounds awfully close to the worst collapse of the wave function. I didn't like that view, so I'd been thinking about the origin problem, and I'd been thinking of that equation written on, on Boltzmann's grave, the relation between entropy and probability. And I could not see how can we even ask the question, why did we start this universe, if all we allow ourselves is one universe? If I absolutely insist, if I start with the prejudice that I only can have one universe, then the question, why did I start with this one, is trite. It doesn't make sense. So part of the problem was we were asking the wrong question, and, and, and that was a few hundred years old problem. So. Thinking along those lines, I, I realized that the only way to make sense of the question, never mind find the answer, but just to be allowed to ask that question in a meaningful way, was to allow for a possible pool, a possible collection of many initial universes, many infant universes, many initial moments from which you could start a universe. Then it would make sense to say, oh, well, why did I start with this one rather than that one? So that, that would be just, just to, to have a question that made sense to ask. I got lucky because as I was thinking along those lines, the, the landscape of string theory was discovered, the whole community was in panic, and many went as far as to call it the death of string theory. If it gives us a multiverse, it's a bad theory, throw it away. I, I thought that was good news. It's exactly what I needed, a collection of possible starts for our universe. So I could even ask the question, but I still had to figure out how do I calculate the chance for our universe to come out of this vastness. So it's great that now I have my collection of possible initial universes, but I still want to know what's the chance, suppose this one is ours, what's the chance for this one to come into existence and produce a universe? And then one day I had this very simple idea, quantum mechanics on the landscape of string theory. Since the universe at its first moment of existence is tiny, I can think of it as a wave. So let the wave go through the landscape of string theory. And then I have my equations. I have quantum equations, the Schrodinger equation, that I can solve and find out exactly what happens to that universe. So that, that's what I did. I allowed the, the wave function of the universe to go through this landscape of string theory, which I took from string theorists, the, the one they had derived. And then I solved the Schrodinger-type equation. At this level, I mean, we, we are dealing with universes, so the formalism is not quantum mechanics, it's quantum cosmology. It's a higher, more abstract level of quantum mechanics, and the Schrodinger-type equation is known as the Willard-DeWitt equation. But at least I could get my answer, so that, that's what I did. I allowed the wave function of the universe to go through the landscape and then calculated the answer from the Schrodinger-type equation.
what I got was nonsense, of course, because the answer turned out to be that the most likely universe you can get out of the landscape is the one that sits at zero energies. We know that if, if Exeter is very hilly, if you have marbles and you allow them to roll down the hills, the most stable position they can go to and the one they like to go to is the lowest valley, the one closest to the center of the Earth. So, of course, that, that's where the gravitational potential created through the interaction with Earth is the lowest. I should have already known that the most stable position for these wave universes would be the one with the lowest energy on the landscape. Just like marbles don't go up mountains, they roll down for the same reason. So I, I was missing something. And then we figured out with uh, one of my uh, main collaborators, Rich Holman at Carnegie Mellon and Tomo Takahashi in Japan, we figured out what we had missed. Remember listening to, to the concert that I was talking about before, where all the waves are superposed and you have entanglement between them? I'd missed that. The answer to the first part here was not just one universe, it was a family of universes because it was a quantum solution. But those waves, each one of them can give rise to a universe. So I was back to square one. Are they entangled with one another? How do I separate them? We, we can't have our universe to be in a superposition of many possible universes, many possible geometries. Somehow, as a universe is about to go through Big Bang inflation and, and grow a real one out of that tiny wave. As, as that process happens, at the same time, I also have to separate all these tiny waves from each other, so branch them out. So each one of them produces its own universe, not entangled with the other ones. And in physics, that's known as decoherence, the way you do that is you place your whole system, in this case the wave function of the universe, into a bath. Think of how you separate gold from ore. You put it in a borax bath. Why? Because different metals in, in the ore have different melting points by interacting with the borax bath. Gold has the lowest, so it falls at the bottom. That's the coherence, exactly the same here. That if you immerse the wave function of the universe into a bath, then these branches, these waves in the wave function will interact differently with, with that environment, with that bath, and they will separate from each other. In our case, that environment came with the territory. It was quantum fluctuations that are always present. So we did that and we calculated how fast that process happens and whether anything is left behind. And again, that's where quantum theory is very useful. One of the reasons why we did not like the multiverse was because we thought it cannot be tested. And if something cannot be tested, it cannot be scientific. We can't go beyond the edge of our universe, beyond the horizon of our universe, because of the speed of light <coughs> limit. That's how you define the horizon, is the furthest distance you can possibly travel if you are going with the speed of light. Anything after that is beyond reach. We thought it was beyond observational reach. That's true, we can't do that. But we can do the next best thing. And that comes in a package which is a sacred principle of quantum theory known as unitarity. So quantum theory says no information, absolutely no information about this system, the whole wave function of the universe, can possibly be lost. So whatever happened to our wave that became our universe early on, including the entanglement with all the other wave universes. That information is still preserved in our sky. So although we can't travel, we can't send a, a rocket beyond the horizon of our universe, we don't need to 
the, the entanglement of our universe with everything else that survived that story and, and grew universes with all the other waves that became universes. That entanglement is imprinted, is engraved in our sky today. And that's because of the unitarity or the information conservation of quantum theory. So my collaborators, uh, Rich Holman and Tomo Takahashi and I, we actually went through the trouble of calculating that entanglement between the waves that became universes early on. Once we did that, the rest was easy. You simply fast forward our universe to present day because you know how it expanded. So if you can calculate what our tiny sky would have looked like back then when it wasn't even a sky because we're still a wave, then you can just propagate that information forward. Fast forward it to present day and you can see that that entanglement is still in our sky today. And we made a series of predictions, seven to be sure. And of course, we were having a lot of fun. We had absolutely no hope that any of it would come true because we're talking about the origin of the universe. So we, we thought of our theory, not as a theory, but as a model through which we could illustrate that at least you can calculate the answer of the origin of the universe. You can also calculate observational signatures to it. We never thought that nature would care a bit about this model. It turns out that we got lucky. Only a few months later, the, the first observational tests started. And as of now, they are all in agreement with what we predicted. And I'll go through that in a minute. But, but let me wrap up this story, which is a very telegraphic way of explaining a lot of hard physics, but we've only got half an hour. <laughs> So what we found is that besides our universe, there is a whole family of universes that start in a similar manner. They take an energy from the landscape of string theory, big bang inflation energy. That's how you start the universe. So from a tiny particle, quantum particle, that we think of as a wave, since that energy blows it up to a bigger size, then you get a classical big universe like the one we have today. But this doesn't just happen to our universe. It happens to all those waves that set at high energies on the landscape of string theory. So quantum theory gives you a family of universes. The landscape gives you the energy for Big Bang inflation to occur in each one of them. Then you have to disentangle them, to separate them from one another. However, part of that early interaction is left in our sky today. The universe is the best laboratory one can dream of because whatever was early on is still here today, it's simply been stretched out with the expansion of the universe. So that's the story. What we found out when we finished this whole big calculation is that the most likely universe to start is the one that starts at high energies, just like our universe. And the coherence was, was uh, an important part of, of that mystery. What's the implication of that? So theoretically, we can derive the answer, and, and that gives us a lot of comfort. But what's the implication? Well, the implication is that we have a multiverse, a quantum multiverse, where our universe is not at the center of the cosmos, just like Earth was not at the center of the universe, but is a humble member in a more intricate, more complex, and more beautiful cosmos. And, and we can think of it, of course, as extending the Copernican principle to the whole universe. So here is my favorite illustration of my theory. I got permission from uh, Focus Italy. They did these graphics when, when they wrote an article about this work. The brown background is, is the landscape 
of string theory. So at every point where you have a wave that settled, they are taking the energy from that background. As I described, once they take the energy, then they start blowing up and growing to big universes. And you don't have just one, you have many of them, depending where all these waves settled on, on the landscape of string theory. All the universes that settle at very low energies, they don't survive. They are terminal universes. They never grow big. They just stay as tiny quantum particles on the landscape of string theory. Because each of them will have the energy it takes from the landscape, it will also have these fluctuations that, that I mentioned in the context of a bath or an environment. Fluctuations behave like matter particles. So it's like you have matter. And we know what matter does. It collapses a patch of space-time into a point to make a black hole. Energy does the opposite, it blows things up. Each of these infant universes has both. It has a bit of fluctuation, it also has a bit of energy that it takes from the landscape. If they start off at high energies, they can survive this crunch of matter, they can continue to grow. But if they start off at very shallow energies there, then they will never be able to, to grow because of the matter crunch. I mentioned that the observational signatures we get today are the entanglement between all these possible universes, which is why here I'm showing the quantum universe, the infant universe, before it grows into a uh, classical big one. You can think of entanglement, just, just think of these tiny universes or waves. They have energy and they have mass, and what happens if you have a bunch of particles with mass and energy? They pull each other gravitationally. If I put, I don't know, 10 black holes in this room or 10 stars, they'd start pulling each other. They would interact with each other. The exact same thing happens to these universes. They are interacting. Although each one of those grows independently of the other, as in the previous picture, still they are pulling on each other. You can think of it as entanglement. That's the, the right way to think of it. Entanglement left from the early days before they grew. Or to visualize it, think of it as just particles that have, are heavy and they are pulling with each other. The shadow, the dark shadow part here, is the signatures that they leave on each other's sky. And that's exactly what we calculated. But we didn't just do it for two universes. We did it for the whole family of universes, an infinite number of them that survived. It's very small, that effect, absolutely. So the dominant story in our sky is still, of course, cosmic inflation, but it's enough to leave its imprints such that they are within our observational capabilities. Now, that part we didn't know in 2005 and 2006 when we derived this list of predictions, but now I'm happy that that's the case. So we said in, in 2005, a part of the sky in the southern hemisphere, a very, very large part, will be nearly empty. It will be like a void. Remember I showed you uh, a map of the sky, of the temperature of the hot and the cold spots? Inflation says everything should be spread uniformly in the sky. That, that's a strong prediction. But if you add, on top of cosmic inflation, if you add this other source, the entanglement effect of our universe with everything else from, from its infancy, then we discovered that there should be about 10 degrees in the sky. That's huge almost a tenth of our visible sky. That should be nearly empty, should not have stars and galaxies, etc. in it. We called it the giant void. And, and we're extremely nervous when we made this prediction because it was crazy to talk of a hole in the sky of 10 degrees. 
But we left it there and, and then we got lucky because eight months later uh, radio astronomers at Minnesota University discovered it completely by accident. They were not looking for it. Nobody was looking for it because nobody would take us seriously at that stage. And, and then, uh, of course, their, their findings were disputed. But then two major CMB experiments, WMAP, a US-funded uh, experiment, satellite experiment, and, and on the last five years, Planck satellite experiment and EU-funded satellite experiment have now confirmed this, that the, the cold spot, the giant void, is absolutely there. We, we made a, a bunch of other predictions, like the overall strength of, of this cosmic microwave background that that you get in, in your uh, TV sets, we said that that should really be suppressed by about 20% because of, of this extra source, this entanglement with everything else. And indeed, that's also confirmed. And then we talked about, if you think of the sky as a northern and southern hemisphere, there will be another giant void, but even bigger this time, that covered the whole hemisphere, the northern hemisphere, that would have slightly less matter than the southern hemisphere. In our temperature maps, it would show as a lower temperature in the northern hemisphere than the southern one. That was observed and confirmed as well. So this was looking very good, and we are delighted, surprised. We are more hopeful of our theory, but of course, I would not bet my bank account on, on the theory being correct. So what have we done so far? Well, when you think about it, it's been only 11,000 years since the glaciation period ended, and, and we went from Homo sapiens to, to the modern human. And look how much we have achieved. We, we know almost everything that happened from the first moment of creation to present day. We, we can even make predictions on how our universe will end. And now, in, in this millennia, we're talking about what was there before the Big Bang and what lies beyond the horizon of our universe. So that's uh, all of that done really through curiosity and imagination when you think of Epicurus anticipating the uncertainty principle 2,000 years ago. And courage, it takes a lot of courage to make claims of this magnitude. And finally, of course, observations to test and check our theories and our understanding of the universe. Does that matter? Absolutely, because when we collide with uh, Andromeda four billion years from now, or if we are swallowed by the sun a billion years from now, we probably won't even be here to, to find out how the universe will end and what happens beyond that. But meanwhile, during the time that we were here, we understood everything there is to understand about our home and our existence and our origin. Thank you. Do we have any questions? Yeah, we've got a question at the back there. Yeah, uh, do we still have a problem with this turtle? <laughs> uh, I will give you the new version of turtles. So these are our new turtles. You think of the landscape as an energy field. That, that's why I made the analogy with the mountainous terrain. Because in, in a mountainous terrain, you, you have the gravitational pull of the Earth, the gravitational energy that pulls on any object that you'd let go down the mountain. So in the same way that you can draw this gravitational energy of a mountainous terrain, you can also draw the landscape as an energy of possible universes, possible places to start the universe. And that comes from those 11 dimensions and wrapping up. So the turtles start here. The, the new version of turtles is energy fields that can start universes. But if you are asking about the question of time, another way to think of the turtles, really nobody 
whether he's in physics, in philosophy, or any other walk of life. Nobody has anything intelligent to say about that. We simply don't know. It is one of, of the biggest mysteries. There is one of the most fascinating mysteries there is about nature. But the three camps on, on that particular one, and, and there is a book coming out next year, so we can either go to a pub and continue discussing, <laughs> or, or maybe you can read it on, on the book that is coming on, on this. But the three camps are, time is fundamental, it's always there. So that line of turtles is infinite. That's the group I am in, because then I, I could not ask the question, what was there before our universe existed? If, if time did not exist, the very word before implies a time context. Then there is another group, Einstein, and, and this theory of everything for a single universe that says, no, time did not exist before the universe existed. It emerged with the universe. There was absolutely nothing before, like the St. Augustine saying that I quoted, that there is hell for those that ask that question, what was there before? Then there is a third group, and that's where it gets weirder, even for cosmologists. It says time is an illusion. It doesn't exist at all. It's in the human mind. It's part of our consciousness. It's something we need to come up with, to invent, in order to describe the world around us. If we follow the implications of that last option, it leads to some very unhappy endings. But at, at the moment, really, the two that are taken seriously are, is time fundamental, always there? A, a very important ingredient of the very fabric of space-time, of the very fabric of nature. Or is it something that is temporary, that just comes with the universe, and then it dies with the universe? Thank, Thank you. you.